God, we're just so grateful that we get to study someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones together this morning. What a humbling opportunity it is to even talk about such a man. Many of us here this morning are beneficiaries of such preaching. God, we thank you that it's not necessarily just the eloquence of the man who is handling the word, it's just the power and sufficiency of the word itself. God, you're so kind to us to even reveal yourself to us and to give us the gospel, the way to be made right with you and your word. Something that we, at least myself, that I take for granted week in and week out. So Lord, as we consider Martin Lloyd-Jones, as we consider his life and legacy, stories, ways to imitate him, we pray more than anything that people would walk away utterly convinced of the power and sufficiency of the word of God preached. And uh, we thank you that through this ordinary means of grace, through your word, you spiritually sustain your people. And God, if there's anyone here this morning, perhaps they're a religious skeptic, perhaps they were invited by a friend or a family member, and they just, dis- or maybe they just randomly walked in here this morning just trying to figure out what this class is about and why people are coming together. Uh, God, I do pray that you would draw them to yourself and save them, that they would be convinced of, of their sin and, and need of a Savior, Christ as Lord. And so we're just grateful for this opportunity. We pray that we would consider Lloyd-Jones and imitate his life, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in a class called Remembering the Faithful. So for the last couple of months now, we have been giving you hors d'oeuvres. We've been giving you appetizers. We've been giving you Sam's Club samples, right, of various theologians and pastors. <laughs> Jacob Moore saying amen. At least we know he's going after the samples at Sam's Club. So, um, But we've been getting appetizers of theologians and pastors throughout church history. And if this is your first time here uh, this morning with us, I'm super glad that you're here Uh, These men that we've been talking about uh, serve as a faithful cloud of witnesses from the past that speaks to us followers of Jesus today. So you may be thinking this morning, because I don't know how your week went, maybe you had a really tough, hard week. And you're thinking to yourself that 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 your wheels are spinning out of control, that you're exhausted. And so you're like, what does this guy... Martin Lloyd-Jones, have anything to do with me? What significance does a man like this have in my life? And if that's what you're thinking this morning, Martin Lloyd-Jones couldn't be a more perfect person to remember, to consider, and to imitate. And why is that the case? Because Lloyd-Jones, throughout his entire tenure as a pastor, believed in the power and sufficiency of the preached word to address all of your matters, all spiritual matters in your life, even when your wheels are about to spin. And if you happen to be a non-Christian this morning, and you're here with us, and you are kind of shrugging from the inside on why this should matter to you, well, you're in luck, because God's Word preached has something to say to you this morning as well, even in our morning gathering, as Brad concludes the book of James. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones is worth talking about or better yet, the word that he handled week in and week out. In his famous book, and I highly recommend it, Preaching and Preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones confidently asserts this, the most urgent need in the Christian church today, and by the way, this is true, the 20th century is, is true for us now. The most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and the most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. So nothing is more urgent for you this morning than this very book, the Bible. So many of you here this morning are members of UBC. You get to be fed well through the preached word week in and week out in our morning gathering, or you get to hear from God's word in a devotional on Sunday evening. You even get a double dose of God's word throughout the week if you're involved with things like, like you know, Owen and Sophia like, are a part of BTI. And other people are part of Equipped to Counsel. So you're getting a double dose, if you will, of God's Word. And I would be remiss if we didn't encourage one another, because we're talking about a man who emphasized a right understanding and practice of preaching. 
I would be remiss if we didn't encourage one another and just, I would love some younger saints, some older saints, middle-aged saints, whatever, um, to just kind of share this morning how you've benefited and grown from preaching from our elders here at UBC over the years, and really what stands out in that form of preaching, how it's been influential in your faith. So would anyone, thinking of younger and older, be willing to share, hey, I've been here at UBC, maybe it's just for a little while, maybe it's been an extended season, as a member, this is how their preaching has affected me in my walk with Jesus. Start with you, Nick. Good. Good word. Just keep it coming. Who else? Say, hey, I've been benefited by the preaching here at UBC, and this is how it's affected me. So it's a great job, Nick. Anyone? Mm. It's not, it's not made me settle for fluff preaching. I want to get the meat, not the milk. Gosh, queen of quotes over there. That's what I'm talking about. Goodness. Man, I feel like you're cheating. You've been reading Lloyd-Jones before you got in here. Goodness. Anyone else? Keep it coming. Who's been impacted by the preaching here? Goodness, I know that my marriage has grown exponentially. So, I mean, I would say that the first year of my marriage was almost like a season of spiritual drought. I was in Little Rock, didn't really have a concept of meaningful church membership. I was in pulpit supply in churches of uh, 30 to, to, to 50 people. We weren't members of a local church at all. I wasn't leading my home, you know, in the right way that I was supposed to. Um, and so Jessica was starving. I know I was starving. And then my brother was actually... Um, he didn't step forward in membership, so I give him a hard time now. But um, he was here all four years and worked with Ben Evans in children's ministry, and that's how I knew about UBC. And uh, first three friends that I made here were Jacob Moore, Scott Belinsky, and Mario Moore. And um, I'm thankful for those brothers, uh, like, pushing me into the faith, allowing me just to kind of uh, settle here, land here. And ever since then, my marriage has grown exponentially under the preached word, week in and week out with these elders, and then, of course, uh, myself and Jessica uh, spiritually. So it's been huge uh, for us. Um, yeah, but anyone else? At least one more person. Hey, but at least you're coming on Sunday mornings. Yeah. Well, thankful for you, sister. Baptism, what up? Anyways, bathe in the word. Go ahead. Man, it's good. Strong, strong answers. 
Now, what if I told you that the preaching emphasis of Lloyd-Jones profoundly shaped the preaching ministries of pastors like Andrew, Boy, Andrew Nunn's boy, John Piper, or Mark Dever? Well, and a closer to home, Lloyd-Jones' preaching ministry has influenced elders who were even here this morning, whether it's Stephen Martin or Nick Roark or Brad Wheeler. Um, so to listen how our pastors, even close to home at UBC, how they handle God's Word each and every Sunday morning or at BTI, is to actually get a closer look into the life and ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, okay? So still, with all this being said, you may be thinking, why in the world should I care this morning about Martin Lloyd-Jones? Why should I care? Well, how many of you have read a book, <laughs> not just read a book, how many of you have read a book published by the publishing company Banner of Truth? Okay, so quite a bit of people. Now, what if I told you that without Martin Lloyd-Jones, there is no banner of truth? Okay, Ian Murray was Lloyd-Jones' ministry assistant by, the, by late 1956, and one of his duties was actually on Wednesdays, similar to what we're doing here on Sunday, Sunday morning, by the way. One of his duty, duties on Wednesdays was to, was to give addresses and lessons on church history to remind those present at Westminster Chapel who that faithful cloud of witnesses were. So long story short, a pretty tall businessman in Lloyd-Jones' congregation was super encouraged by these Wednesday evening lessons and wondered why the church knew so little about church history, so little about this faithful cloud of witnesses. So the businessman and Ian Murray formed the nonprofit charity Banner of Truth, and in those early days of this nonprofit ministry, Dr. Lloyd-Jones served as the close advisor to this work and contributed to uh, a choice of books for this particular ministry. And so one could easily conclude without Lloyd-Jones' uh, Lloyd preaching ministry and without him selecting Ian Murray, Murray to be his ministry assistant, there is no banner of truth. And more than this, you should care about Lloyd-Jones because he reminds all of us that the preaching of God's word, the preaching of the gospel, is the only hope for you and me. He says this, The business of preaching is not to entertain, but to lead people to salvation, to teach them how to find God. Now certainly, this was the theme of the Apostle Paul's preaching ministry, so turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 to 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, um, it will be on the screen behind me and also on your handout with Roman numeral 2. So last Sunday, as we considered J.C. Ryle, we actually looked at Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul was writing to uh, a group of believers, the church at Ephesus. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to another group of believers, uh, another church, the church at Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians 1, 1-2 says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, our brother, our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, what this church, who had its fair share of problems, um, to put it lightly, what the church needed was not entertainment or the contagious personality of a pastor or the Greek rhetoric of Paul's day. What this church needed, just like the church at Ephesus and any of these other churches, including UBC, what the church needed was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that addresses sin, because their sin, the root, was causing all of the problems in the church. Divisions, lawsuits, sexual immorality, you name it. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 to 2, the following, starting in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers or brothers and sisters, and I, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul is no, if we just stop here, Paul is no pulpiteer. That's what Lloyd-Jones was pushing back against, that, by the way, dominated pulpits across Britain and the United States, the idea of pulpiteers. So he addresses the notion of pulpiteers in that book, Preaching and Preachers, and he says this about them. These men, 
pulpiteers, preachers of the second half of the last century, basically. These men were pulpiteers rather than preachers. I mean that they were men who could occupy a pulpit and dominate it and dominate the people. They were professionals. There was a good deal of the element of showmanship in them, and they were experts at handling congregations and playing on their emotions. In the end, they could do almost what they liked with them. These pulpiteers were to me, with my view of preaching, an abomination. So whether it's Lloyd-Jones saying this, or us examining 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul is no pulpiteer as he reflects on his preaching ministry with this particular church. If he was a pulpiteer, why on earth would Paul have said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, right? Not a non-Christian, Jew and Gentile alike, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That doesn't sound like a pulpiteer, does it? Paul wasn't impressive in the world's eyes or according to the world's standards. He didn't preach with lofty speech and wisdom according to those uh, standards. Instead, look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why is that the case? Because Jesus is the only hope for weary saints and unrepentant sinners. Church family or my non-Christian friend, this Jesus who was sinless, crucified, buried, and risen is your only hope of heaven and the only way to be made right and brought back to God. That was the essence of Lloyd-Jones' ministry, and it was the essence of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and even the ministry here of your UBC elders, Jesus crucified and proclaimed. I love how, you know, uh, this author makes this note about Lloyd-Jones. It's wonderful. The doctor felt the strong winds of prevailing public opinion, but did not yield to them. By the way, the public opinion, um, Lloyd-Jones was being criticized for basically not abandoning central tenets of the faith there in Britain, and so he had a lot of critics. Um, but anyways, he did not yield to them. He stepped right into them and kept to the ancient path of the apostle Paul, who resolved to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right. So, um, <clears throat> before we go any further, and as we consider Martin Lloyd-Jones' life, in particular, like, kind of key events, uh, does anyone have any questions, thoughts, or comments, uh, even just encouragements and praises uh, as it pertains to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or even Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, ministry legacy in life? How many of you even know anything about uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones? Raise your hand. Okay, so a few. All right, awesome. Okay. Um, yeah. Jeremy, what do you love about Martin Lloyd-Jones? If you could pick one thing. Yeah. Oh, I hate that I asked you that question because that was one of the points I was going to bring out. So anyway, <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, okay. As we remember Dar uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was born uh, in Cardiff on December 20th, 1899. He was a bright student and actually, and actually escaped death along with his brother and father as their house, if I'm not mistaken, burned down to the ground. Pretty much nothing was left. And so this moment was pivotal and Lloyd-Jones thinking about spiritual things, he would even bring it back up later in life, and it would play a role in his uh, eventual conversion later on in life. And so, if there's anything to be said about Martin Lloyd-Jones pre-conversion, even post-conversion, he was extremely bright academically, really unusually bright young man. In 1921, he started as an assistant to the royal physician, Sir Thomas Hooker. 
who said this of young Lloyd-Jones then. Here's what he said. He was the most acute thinker that I ever knew. So, so this man, Lloyd-Jones, had a bright future in the medical field. The writing then was on the wall that this guy was going to make history medically. And so Lloyd-Jones, at a young age, actually obtained a medical degree from London University and became a member of the Royal College of Physicians. Now, a turning point uh, took place in 1923 while he was still a medical student at St. Bartholomew's in London. He began listening uh, during that time to the preaching of Dr. John Hutton, who was the minister at the time at Westminster's Chapel. And spoiler alert, that's where Lloyd-Jones will serve nearly 30 years just as a faithful pastor. But uh, it was during that time he was hearing faithful preaching, and Lloyd-Jones had never heard such preaching in his life, even though he attended church with his family his whole life. It was both the word exposited and the amazing power of God to save, change, and transform lives. That's what drew him to this preaching. So it was through this preaching that the Lord drew Lloyd-Jones to himself. And so Lloyd-Jones recalls it this way. For many years, I thought I was a Christian when in fact I was not. By the way, that's common in many of the testimonies that I've heard here at UBC. So praise God for his work of grace even in your life. For many years I thought I was a Christian when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see that I had never been a Christian and became one. What I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin. But I never heard this. The preaching we had was always based on the assumption that we are all Christians. That's why it's even crucial in student ministry never to assume that all students present are following Jesus. It's careful not to assume, and praise God, we have a number of students who are walking with Jesus who are members, but it's, all, it's always imperative for myself and all of our leaders as we're teaching to never assume that students present are all Christians and so not to use we. And so be careful even in language simple as that. But even as a medical student and physician, Martin Lloyd-Jones couldn't get enough of God and couldn't get enough of God's Word. So during this period of his life, he was shocked. Remember, he's serving uh, as a member of the Royal College of Physicians. He is becoming a big deal in London. And so during this period of his life, he was utterly shocked at the moral conditions of both ends of London's social scale. He was uh, shocked and concerned with the upper class and the poor. And what was uh, common... Uh, On both ends of the spectrum, he saw the effects of drunkenness and sexual immorality with people who were poor, and he saw the equally destructive impact of those very same things among the upper class that seemed they had everything figured out and everything at their disposal. And so this troubled Martin Lloyd-Jones. In fact, in Lloyd-Jones' mind, he actually thought he was helping people get well. Hence, he was trying to address symptoms so that they could simply go back sinning with more abandon. And so, in Lloyd-Jones' eyes, medicine could not address the real issue. Only the gospel could change people at their core. And so, after struggling with the desire to give his life over to preaching for nearly two years, in 1927, Lloyd-Jones got married to Beth Ann Phillips, who, by the way, was also a physician. He moved to... um, Aberaven, Port Talbot, to minister to a church, uh, and I believe he ministered to that church for 11 years. So his first sermon was on the very text that we talked about this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, um, where he knew, decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. What's particularly striking, though, is that he never moved away from this verse in the Bible, and it served as his guiding principle from the start of his ministry until he went to go home and be with Jesus. So after 11 years at this first church, Lloyd-Jones resigned from this church in 1938 due to physical issues like massive fatigue, and he even experienced during this time a degree of vocal failure. And yet, and this is how the Lord's providence works, um, in the Lord's providence that very weekend, he received a letter from Dr. Campbell Morgan, who was at the time the only pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, and he wanted Lloyd-Jones to kind of share the preaching load with him at Westminster Chapel for at least six months. And so in 1983, Lloyd-Jones 
and his family moved to London, so Wells to London, and eventually Lloyd-Jones would be the main preaching pastor at Westminster Chapel for almost 30 years, a faithful pastor. And throughout his preaching ministry at Westminster Chapel, men like J.I. Packer, how many of you know who J.I. Packer is? Yeah, so the author of Knowing God, uh, J.I. Packer would be impacted by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so Lloyd-Jones, there we go. Lloyd-Jones' preaching came to J.I. Packer, quote, with the force of an electric shock. He brought God into the pulpit. He was the greatest man I have ever known. It's high praise from a high author. And so despite the impact his preaching had on his hearers, this is fascinating. Lloyd-Jones would remark at the end of his ministry, I can say quite honestly that I would not have crossed the road to listen to myself preaching. You know why? Lloyd-Jones did not believe in the power of himself, but he believed in the power of God in preaching. He would take many months, even years, to expound a chapter of the Bible verse by verse. His sermons would often be, and I think some of you get this right at UBC, his sermons sermons would often be around 50 minutes (laughs) to an hour in length. And so, hey, I guess our pastors really have benefited from Lloyd-Jones, huh? Um, So praise God for that. So they'd be like pretty longer in length, and it attracted many students uh, from universities and colleges in London. So long story short, Lloyd-Jones retired in 1968 from serving as the lead pastor at Westminster Chapel, and he did so faithfully even in the face of opposition uh, that was going on in Great Britain. But here's one thing I do want you to know, particularly those who are like, in, retire- in, the, in the season of retirement. Okay, Martin Lloyd-Jones did not waste his life in retirement. Remember John Piper's famous book, Don't Waste Your Life? Or the sermon he gave back in May of 2000 in Memphis, Tennessee. I think it was at a passion conference. And in that sermon, he talks about a seashell illustration. Listen to this. It's part of the transcript. This is Piper. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace the tragic dream. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. So you come before him and you say, here it is, Lord, my seashell collection. I've got a nice swing and look at my boat, God. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. You see, Lloyd-Jones could have spent his life in medical luxury, He could have even wasted away his retirement years counting seashells, if you will. But he refused to waste his life, even his retirement, as he finished well. Following his last sermon at the age of 80, Lloyd-Jones would spend his retirement on finishing well and not wasting his life. He spent it editing his sermons for publication or the lectures that he gave. He especially spent the rest of his life loving his wife, Beth Ann, well and his daughters, his two daughters, well. He used his time to minister to other ministers laboring over the gospel. He answered letters personally, and he even assisted, as I talked about earlier, the work at Banner of Truth. And so, Lloyd-Jones finished well. He died on March 1st, 1981, 13 years to the day after he preached his last sermon at Westminster Chapel. So the verse that served as the guiding principle of his preaching and ministry was etched on his gravestone, and so it would say this, as you see on your slide, in loving memory of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the beloved doctor, 1899 to 1981, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Lloyd-Jones' life and pulpit was marked by this Jesus. Now, before we consider some direct points of application as we walk away from our time together, let's consider just a few stories about Lloyd-Jones' life and his preaching ministry. First one was during the bombing raids of 1941. Westminster Chapel was hit three times, but each time firefighters were able to save the building in the Lord's kindness. Now, in June of 1944, a V-1 flying bomb landed on the guard's chapel, which was a few hundred uh, yards away from Westminster Chapel. All right? So it didn't hit directly Westminster Chapel, just a few uh, hundred yards away. And so the congregation, like it shook the building. So the congregation was in shock. I'm, I'm sure they're like, okay, like, we got to stand. We're going to freak out. What are we going to do? And so they stood in attention. And after a brief pause, Lloyd-Jones continued his prayer as though nothing had happened. And the congregation sat down and he continued to preach. Guys, not even a bomb in the background could stop the preaching and prayers of Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's incredible. That's how much he was convinced that it was the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Even Beth Ann. By the way, here's what's interesting even about Beth Ann, just a freebie. Like, she was converted, I believe, two years into Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry. She had began to realize, like, I don't think I belong to Jesus. So it was even in the influence and in, 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 in preaching ministry of Lloyd-Jones that she actually came to saving faith in Jesus, which is just incredible. But nevertheless, Beth Ann, Lloyd-Jones' wife, knew this. He knew, she knew that Lloyd-Jones was totally convinced of his preaching, like the power of God in preaching. And so in 1959, Lloyd-Jones and his wife, Beth Ann, they were on vacation in Wells, and they attended a little chapel for a Sunday morning prayer gathering, and Lloyd-Jones asked them, would you like me to give a word this morning? So the people hesitated because it was Lloyd-Jones' vacation. They're like, man, we don't want to bother this guy. And they didn't want to presume on his physical energy, if you will. But <laughs> Lloyd-Jones' wife, Beth Ann, said, let him. Let him. Preaching is his, is his life. So Lloyd-Jones truly was ready in season and out of season to preach the whole counsel of God. That was the type of man and the type of conviction that he had. Secondly, Lloyd-Jones is really a model for all of us this morning. Whether you aspire to be a pastor, you are a pastor, or you just love Jesus and you're a content church member, praise God. Lloyd-Jones, he's a model for you this morning. His convictions reveal that, uh, that he desired to be faithful instead of popular. Okay, that, That's two different things, right? especially in light of the ecumenical movement during his day. So if you want to read more about the ecumenical movement, I would highly encourage you uh, to read Evangelicalism Divided by Lloyd-Jones' ministry assistant, Ian Murray. Read that book. Meditate on that book. You will be shocked. Some of you will get mad. I assume some of you will throw it through the window. But nevertheless, it is one of the best books that Banner of Truth has ever published. So, Essentially, the ecumenical movement was really a response of Christian leaders to be unified at all costs in the face of, of growing secularism uh, going on in Britain, going on in the U.S. And so what you had, you had liberal Christians, conservative Christians, and Catholics, and the like. And they're coming together, and they want to make this large unified front. But Lloyd-Jones, instead of succumbing to pressure, he realized this is not going to make any substantial difference in the world at all. And so he chose to be faithful instead of being popular and compromising. He regarded this whole movement, and he was criticized, by the, by the way, by his friends and his foes. He criticized the whole movement as proof that the church is still confusing the symptoms, secularism, religious skepticism, with the root disease, which is sin. And so in his eyes, the root disease in the world was still sin, and so the world did not need the church to water down the doctrinal distinctives, but instead they needed greater clarity on the difference between Christianity and the world. So it didn't need to become, the church didn't need to become like the world in order to win the world, but to stand out to offer the world a clear alternative, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Lloyd-Jones decided to be faithful instead of popular. Now also, 
out of all the people that we're teaching on, there are only three where we have audio recordings that you can listen to today. Lloyd-Jones on, uh, first of all, there's countless sermons that you can hear the audio of, whether it's Romans or whatever, but also um, there's two interviews through Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. You can access it on YouTube as well. There's two interviews by two reporters uh, where reporters actually, what's so interesting is that they didn't even interrupt him, which is very different now, but um, but you can hear and see in the exchange with the journalist and reporter uh, that he chose to remain faithful instead of, instead of succumbing to pressure. So if there's any homework, if you're interested in homework, please take your time out this week, watch those two videos, and when you get done watching them, I think they're 20 minutes or, or so, like a piece, or just 40 minutes, do yourself a favor and replay them. They're amazing. And so there's three people where, where we have those recordings. We have Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think there's some. Uh, Nick's going to be teaching on C.S. Lewis. Um, so there's audio recordings there. Thank the Lord I'm not teaching on him. And then, um, um, and then, uh, then of course, you have R.C. Sproul uh, with Ligonier Ministries, and there's a ton of stuff there. Now, the last story, though, I want to end with um, doesn't get much attention or at least isn't the first thing people say when talking about Lloyd-Jones. It's usually about what preaching is or isn't, or something to the effect of his ministry, or what was going on at Westminster Chapel. But I think it's actually really important before we consider application for us to get a quick glimpse of his marriage to his wife, uh, Beth Ann. So there's a stack of letters written in 1937 and 1939, In 1937, there were letters written during a three-week kind of preaching tour that Lloyd-Jones had in America. And in 1937, what we know is that this was a really difficult time for Lloyd-Jones. His daughter, later on, Elizabeth, said years later after that three-week trip that Lloyd-Jones, her dad, vowed to never be gone from Beth Ann that long again. So in 1939... Letters were written during World War II. That was a huge event going on in the life of, our, in, in the, life of the world. His family, Lloyd-Jones' family, had been evacuated to the countryside while Lloyd-Jones remained and staying put in London. And his love and longing for his wife, Beth Ann, came through every page of those letters. He was affectionate, he was aware, and he was attentive to her. So, so listen to some of these kind of statements that he says in these letters. Let us say just this much. Thinking of you gives me endless happiness. And I'm more certain than ever that there is no one in the world like you. Not even approaching you. Not all in the world. I've been thinking of 11 years ago tonight when we went together to Covenant Gardens and they're back. I thought at that time that I loved you, but I had to live with you for over 10 years to know you properly and so to love you truly. I know that I am deficient in many things and must at times disappoint you. That really grieves me and I'm trying to improve, but believe me, if you could see my heart, you would be amazed at how great is my love. I hope you know indeed, I know that you know, in spite of all failings, I can do nothing but say again that from the human standpoint, I belong entirely to you. Lloyd-Jones evidently enjoyed his wife, which came through his letters, and he really, I mean, this is awesome, he just wanted to talk to his wife about anything and everything. So listen to this. It's a crying shame that you're not here with me. It tends to spoil everything. I can't begin to tell you how I feel about this perpetual moving back and forth, especially since I have no certain hope of seeing you for another month. A kind of um, paralysis comes over me when I think of the situation. Look after yourselves, eat like horses, and keep warm. I will write again tomorrow. Or I see time passing terribly slowly in the absence of your company overpowering There are dozens of things that arise from what I notice or from what I'm thinking or reading that I would like to talk about with you, but you're not here. There is nothing to be done but exercise patience. Or, well, my very dear ones, I love this, look after yourselves. So ones in the plural, he's talking to his wife and his two daughters. 
Well, my very dear ones, look after yourselves and be as happy as you can. I have a sore longing to see you, but there is over a week to wait. And here it is. God has been marvelously good to me, you, Elizabeth, and Anne. And haven't we too been blessed with two exceptionally sweet little girls? You will all be in my thoughts every, every step of the trip, and I shall be daily thanking God for you. And he ended every letter with some variation of this, all, all my love to you, my three beloved ones, and especially to the biggest of them. Husbands, do you love your wife with this deep-rooted affection? Is she still your love? Does she still capture your attention? Do you enjoy, all right, listen to this, do you enjoy spending time with her? Do you love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? So husbands, here's my plea to you this morning as we consider the marriage of Martin and Beth Ann, relentlessly chased after your bride until death. Relentlessly chase after her. Prioritize time with her. Enjoy her presence and point her to Jesus. A few points of application as we come to a close. First one's this in your handout. Don't neglect the joy of being a faithful Christian. Don't neglect the joy of being a faithful Christian. It's true that Beth Ann on vacation in July said that preaching was her husband's life. What she meant is that her husband's ministry was marked by the belief, conviction, and practice that God's word truly was sufficient to address our deepest problem, our sin. And so we know that countless people throughout his tenure at Westminster Chapel would be converted and sit under Lloyd-Jones preaching. And yet, preaching wasn't the joy of his life. Instead, Lloyd-Jones' joy was being a Christian a follower of Jesus. His heart was captured by Jesus, and he wanted to live in obedience to him all the days of his life. The point of this lesson this morning, friends, isn't for just young, aspiring preachers here or for a pocket of the body aspiring to be local church pastors. Listen to me. This is for you, okay? This is for you, weary saint, an everyday faithful church member, don't neglect the joy of being a faithful Christian. That's what Lloyd-Jones even wanted to be remembered as and what he had joy in. Look at this. Lloyd-Jones asked a friend to preach at his funeral on the themes of the loveliness of Christ and obtaining an abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom. As the minister was getting ready to leave, Lloyd-Jones called him back and said, Come here, my boy. I want you to remember one thing. I am only a forgiven sinner. There is nothing more to me than that. Don't forget it. Or this. Lloyd-Jones, I did not live for preaching. Is there anything, and by the way, this is found actually in some of his commentary work, is preaching in uh, one of his commentaries in Ephesians. It says this. Is there anything in the world which is comparable to the privilege of being a Christian. Church member, do you find joy and the privilege of just following Jesus? Doctrine and life, here's the second point of application. Doctrine and life are inseparable. The former always informs the latter, so don't separate the two. So Lloyd-Jones emphasized really over and over again in his ministry that which is equally relevant for you this morning. He gets at the heart of this in answering the question, what is preaching? That's what he says. What is preaching? And this is what Jeremy was getting at. It's theology on fire. And a theology which, just, which does not take fire, I maintain, is a defective theology. Or at least the man's understanding is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. So if you translate that to the Christian life, and this is crucial at the heart of it, the Christian life is doctrine on fire, as one author puts it. You can't have doctrine alone, and you just can't have relational living alone. The former informs the latter. Doctrine and life belong together. 
It's exactly what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 22 when he answered the lawyer who asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He doesn't start first with, hey, go love your neighbor. Go do X, Y, and Z. He says this, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. So he's concentrating vertically on God first. This is the great and first commandment. And second is, like it, horizontally, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So without a right understanding and love for God, you can't love your neighbor in the way that God has called you to. The vertical effects, the horizontal, doctrine informs your life. So don't pin them against one another, brothers and sisters. Be both doctrinal and relational. And then lastly, diligently listen to the preached word and thank God for elders who are beneficiaries of Lloyd-Jones preaching. So the point is relatively brief but important. A majority of this lesson has centered on Lloyd-Jones being utterly convinced of the primacy and sufficiency of preaching to address the sinner the church, and the world. Lloyd-Jones did not believe in gimmicks, games, or compromising the gospel and doctrinal distinctives to accumulate numbers or to please the masses. From beginning to end, Martin Lloyd-Jones was convinced of God's means of saving and sustaining into glory his bride, the local church. And he does it through the preaching of God's word. So if there's anything I want you to walk away with by way of application, it's this. Prepare your heart this morning to be addressed by God and his word. Amen? But tune out the distractions, and maybe you had a hard week, and just try to diligently listen to God's word this morning. Tune all of those things out. And let me encourage you, a great way to diligently listen to God's word being preached with the right posture is actually, I think these are available at Connecting Point. It's the new sermon cards where we're going to see this summer where Brad Wheeler's going to be going through the book of Titus. We're going to have a handful of people going through um, Psalms. And I believe Cole is doing three sermons in the book of Isaiah. So a great way to prepare your heart to hear God's word preached is to read through this, pray through this, and read it. Uh, in advance. Another thing that you can do uh, in order to diligently listen to God's word that will help your heart and help your affections, it's something as simple as this that everyone can do in this room. Pray for your pastors. Pray for Brad week to week. Pray for Nick week to week. Pray for Stephen. Pray for John. Pray for Mike. Pray for Cole. Pray for these people who are on this preaching card as they labor over God's word to feed you as their own soul is fed throughout the week. And, And lastly, Thank God for elders who are the fruit of the preaching ministry of Lloyd-Jones because without him, arguably, you don't have someone like Brad Wheeler. So thank God for Lloyd-Jones. This is how I want to close our time briefly. Um, Yeah, so there's a book, uh, Church History from Reformation Heritage, and I actually want to give uh, this out uh, to Mr. Russo. Uh, if that's if that's okay. So, brother, you have been an absolute encouragement to all the pastoral assistants who've been teaching uh, with Nick Roark. Uh, I said that to you last Sunday. Um, you've just been a great encourager, and it's evident that you love God and His Word and people in church history. So, I want you to benefit from this book. Yep. All right. So, I think it's super fitting. So, doc, so Martin Lloyd Jones was a doctor. Uh, or a physician turned pastor. So I'm going to close our time by having a doctor come up here um, who happens to be one of your pastors. I'm going to ask Dan Paul if he'll come up here. Uh, He's going to take over. I'm going to hand him this mic. And I wanted a doctor who happens to be a faithful pastor uh, to encourage you, church member, in these ways. I think it's on, brother. Thank you, Colby. I I guess the only similarity between Martin Lloyd-Jones and myself is the similarity one might expect between a sixth grader holding a basketball and Michael Jordan. So with that being said, uh, in order to be brief and clear, I thought I'd frame my thoughts on being a doctor as well as serving as an elder within the framework of these three thoughts. The first is that of identity. I think that Paul was absolutely right when he said, you are complete in Christ. The trouble with us physicians, we put our identity in our profession and in our education. Lloyd-Jones, in addressing the medical students of his day, 
said that he came across a gravestone in an old churchyard which said, born John Jones, a man died a doctor. So I think the great danger for us as physicians is how do I view myself, a forgiven sinner, an adopted child of God, and therefore to display Christ through all that I do. And that begins with being good, being a good doctor in my work. I think that the best example to be a Christian is to be good at what you do. And then to realize that when we do what we do, we are to display and make much of God. So identity should frame what I do. What I do is, who I, is because of who I am. And then the second is one to be sensitive. We talked about the fact that Lloyd-Jones talked about the fact that we ought to consider the whole man. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So I'm conscious always that man is an embodied soul. What shall it profit a patient if he's very healthy bodily but is sick towards God? So you always want to be sensitive to treating the whole person when opportunities arise. Now, I don't want to make every encounter with a patient as a gospel encounter and make a royal nuisance of myself, but at the same time, I'm also reminded of what J.D. Greer, I think, once said, that telling people, talk about Jesus, but use words if necessary. It's like telling, give me your phone number, use digits if necessary. So there ought to be a balance. And sometimes being sensitive to that need, being aware that some of the physical ailments, Lloyd-Jones, when he was doing work for Dr. Lord Hoder, realized that many of these patients who were coming to see him really had ailments of the soul. So remembering that and not failing to address that would be like telling a patient that you are healthy when they've got cancer. So you've got to be sensitive towards that. And there are three things I remember, the frailty of life, the reality of death and the certainty of judgment gives us that framework in which we want to look at every patient through the gospel lens. So lastly, one of the things that I remember is Paul writing to Romans. You remember what he said, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of the capabilities God has given you in the light of the faith that he has given you. So humility is, I think, a rare quality. Like somebody said, I think Augustine it was who said, humility is one virtue that appeals to my ego. And that's me. I think that we ought to be humble when God gives our patients healing to give all the glory to God. And yet at the same time, when things don't work out the way they do, to seek help from the God who created us and fashioned us and to get a second opinion. And when we do that, I think that we give glory to God and say, Lord, I'm dependent on you. You can, I can't and my strength comes from you. I think Ben Franklin was the best theologian for doctors. You know what he said? God heals the patient and the physician takes the fee. That's where I am. Thank you. Hey, real quick before you uh, walk away, brother. So uh, this was probably the hallmark, well, probably the Roman set, but then this is a fantastic book, Preaching and Preachers. It's obviously the doctor turned pastor. You happen to be a, a, a doctor, a physician, who happens to be a faithful pastor who shepherds us, and I want you to have this book and for you to be blessed by it and edified by it, brother. Thank you so much, brother.